0: Hey guys, you've got Mahesh from Escape Velocity back with a mind-bending episode on the Proof of Coverage podcast. Today, we're gonna do something slightly different and explore the amazing landscape of lucid dreaming. For those not familiar, lucid dreams are conscious dreams where the dreamer exercises control over the setting and experiences awareness. These lucid dreams are wholly different from normal sleep states, which are defined by blissful unawareness where you're waking up after and often have no idea what happened. So I've got two very distinguished and brilliant guests here today to discuss how technology is letting us explore the brain as the final frontier. First, we have Eric, founder of Prophetic AI. So Prophetic has actually created the first hardware device that's helping bring lucid dreaming to the masses. We've also got Evan Fisher here, founder of Portal Ventures, an early stage crypto venture firm really focused on the biggest ideas out there. I'd note here as a disclaimer that both Evan and I are angel investors in Prophetic. With that, let's explore lucid dreaming.
1: Thank you, first of all, for, for having me on um, and great to chat, nice to see you, Evan. Lucid dreaming, you know, definitionally is the state of being aware that you are dreaming within a dream, right? Um, and depending on your abilities, and it really runs the gamut, I mean, you can have kind of periods of lucidity, um, but, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you get the full kind of spectrum of what's possible. Uh, just to give you a sense, by the way, background: about fifty-five percent of of adults uh, have experienced having a lucid dream at least once in their life, and around twenty to fifteen percent of those people uh, say that they experience lucid dreams on a more regular basis, kind of monthly or uh, a couple of times a month. Um, so, what a lucid dream, you know, is at its at, you know at its height, is you are aware that you are dreaming, and you can control the phenomenological contents of that dream at will. And this is everything from the environment that you are in. The, the narrative of the dream. Uh, ever since kind of ChatGPT came out, I've been prompting my dream characters very similarly to how you would prompt, you know, ChatGPT, and that's really you're, you're really prompting and t- talking to kind of your your subconscious. Um, and there's there's kind of three things that you gain from this uh, experience. One, there is very very much productivity gains that you can have in your dreams. People code in their dreams. Famousl,y Svarocean Ramanujan, one of the most prolific mathematicians of the 20th century, you, you know, did his infinite series in in his dreams, um, creatively. Salvador Dali painted in his dreams. That's where the kind of surreal, whimsical, dreamlike character of the paintings came from. You could also uh, do something as boring and not boring, but or just relevant to those two things. As I could have, tr- you know, tried to do this interview, do this podcast in my dream, just to do a dry run. You know what I mean? Um, the second thing, and then the thing that really got me interested is it's a very metaphysically potent experience, right? It brings to the fore these two metaphysical questions of what is consciousness and what is reality, and you're just in the thick of it, and it's, it's all inspiring in that way. Um, and then, you know, the third thing is really recreational. As I mentioned, you can manipulate the phenomenological experience at will. You've never been to Bali? Well, whatever your perception of Bali is, you, you can instantiate, you can fly, you can do any number of things. So it's kind of the ultimate VR experience in that way. Um, so broadly speaking, that's lucid dreaming.
2: That's awesome. And it's a really interesting description to sort of compare it to VR to some degree and the idea of sort of controlling your surroundings in a very manipulatable way. Uh, I think at the end of the day, it also has a really interesting role within social consciousness just because of movies like Inception and feel like there's a lot of talk about the brain and the brain more broadly right now. So I've heard a lot about lucid dreaming and uh, we're super excited to dig into what some of the interesting stuff you could do with it is. Uh, I guess, Eric, have you ever lucid dreamed before? Yeah, this comes from a deep anecdotal
1: relationship, you know, with, with it. So I was part of like a very lucky cohort of people where I have a real proclivity, natural proclivity for this. I, I think I had my like first lucid dream when I was like 12 years old, that I can remember. And, and when I was in university, you know, had a lot of time as a, as a student, um, really started digging into uh, reading about it. So uh, it's probably important to say, doctor, there's a gentleman named Dr. Stephen Labarge. His PhD at Stanford in 1980 really kicked off the scientific rigorous study of the brain state, which is really flowered now. Um, and he developed these things called reality checks these behaviors and routines that you could do uh, that could increase your probability of lucid dreaming uh, or becoming lucid in a dream. These are things like tur- adjusting light levels, because if you try to turn a, a light on and off very quickly in a dream, it like doesn't work. Or if you have a digital watch, um, you know, if you look at your watch and are very like focused about, okay, am I awake or am I sleeping? You'll do that in a dream and you'll realize that the digital numbers are like completely like, you know, garbled. And, um, and so got really, really good at lucid dreaming in university. And, of, 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 you know, Listen, I mean, then you kind of launch into adult life and it's much more difficult to kind of maintain these, um, these routines. And it's actually one of the impetuses for why I believe we need a technological me- you know, mediation to, to kind of give a stable, induced you know, brain state to anyone, whether they've had a lucid dream or not. Um, but, but still, uh, you know, probably lucid dream twice a month.
2: Wow, twice a month. That's, uh, that's pretty crazy. How about you, Evan? You ever lucid dream? I, I did when I was younger, to Eric's point. It's, it's hard to tap into in the daily routine. And I'm sure we'll, we'll get into this, but one of the things that really excites me is... Um, like the brain is the last frontier and understanding how to change the state of the brain um, is something that will come. I think like what Eric's working on is how do you induce the brain into a lucid dream? There's also, you know, maybe a project that can help you induce the brain into a state which is more conducive for work or more conducive for a meditative practice or more conducive for like recovering sleep. TLDRs I used to, but it's, it's hard to actually maintain that routine in, you know, the newer custom muscle. And muscle. I think it's the kind of thing 10 years ago where people sort of heard the term and they were kind of like, what is that? And now it's a pretty commonly accepted thing. I too have uh, lucid dreamed from time to time. Although I don't know about you guys, I always end up in a state of sleep paralysis afterwards, which is terrifying mm-hmm. for, uh, for people who don't know. Sleep paralysis is like after you come out of a lucid dream, generally for like a minute, every once in a while, you just like, you can't move. So like you feel that you're back in your body, but like your consciousness kind of hasn't returned. So you're kind of just sitting there in bed and it's a terrifying experience. But uh, it's one of those that kind of just comes as the aftershock of the experience itself sometimes.
1: That's interesting. I've experienced sleep paralysis parallel to this, but I've never had that. But that cannot be pleasant at
2: times for sure. Maybe with that, let's sort of dive into uh, some of the building aspects here. Sort of, Eric. I know you have a really interesting background. Would love to sort of hear a little bit about how you came to this idea, and maybe if you could take that to what prophetic AI actually is and what you're building would be really interesting.
1: Sure. My early career really um, was me ping-ponging between the New York City and Israeli tech venture ecosystem. So did some sense at startups in Tel Aviv, uh, one of which was acquired by Fiverr, um, then came back to the States, worked for a company here in New York, and then went back to Israel uh, to to work for what's called the Israel Innovation Authority, it's essentially the government's uh, venture arms, about a half a billion dollars used uh, to subsidize the you know investment ecosystem, set up multinational R&D labs, things like that. And I was living in Jerusalem, right? I mean, it's the center of you know Western metaphysics and theology. And I must tell you, because I've had this experience of lucid Dreaming, I was really kind of hoping to have, you know, equally or approaching, you know, deep metaphysical experiences like that, you know, in Jerusalem, and really didn't have it um, and didn't have them. I was somebody who always made this kind of promise to myself or really cared about the idea of having the most like impactful metaphysical questions at the center of, of my life and having it in a productive way. Most people, right, put metaphysical things to the side. You kind of touch them when like, God forbid, you like lose somebody or maybe you have a child, but like some transformative event. But I was like, I want to contend with these ideas, you know, at the core. And so actually in 2018, I decided to start this company. Um, I know exactly where I was. I was in this like, park outside of the city of Jerusalem. And I, just to give you a sense, I also came up with a name for the company in that same afternoon because I was reading all this theology. And whether it's, by the way, you know, Abraham, Muhammad or whatever, you also have Buddha and, and other prophets where they received their prophetic wisdom in their dream. And so that's where the name for the company prophetic came from. Um, and so I've basically done in the last five years, like a dissertation on you know, this topic, um, and, and in the last few years, really diving into potential hardware modalities that could actually be used, neurostimulation uh, technologies that can be used to, as, as Evan was alluding to, uh, basically stimulate and, and stabilize specific brain states. The thing that really got me excited and realized that this was something that is not, you know, when you hear this technology, you probably think it's like, this sounds like a technology of like 2050, not 2025. But, but when I found, you know, concentrated transcranial ultrasound, which by the way, and I know Evan, Evan knows this when I talk to him. But uh, the best research uh, that's been done with this was at the University of Arizona by a gentleman named Dr. Jay Sanguetti, who was using it to induce um, deep meditative states. Um, and he was working with Shinzen Yang, who is kind of a la the Ram Dass crowd, kind of a, a consciousness elder. They developed this whole protocol, and I can kind of get into this, uh, Mahesh, if you want, of the things you need to know in order to do this. So the two things you need are you need to know what areas of the brain you're stimulating. And the way we do that, by the way, is through a partnership with a consortium of universities led by the Donders Institute, which is headed by a gentleman named Dr. Martin Juster, who did the first fMRI study on music dreaming in 2015. So you use this fMRI data to basically, uh, and training algorithms with it, to create like a a model that understands what regions of the brain are we focused on, okay? The second thing you need to understand is what is the Hertz band uh, with that ultrasound that you need to use that's the most optimal at, at achieving this outcome? The way you develop that hypothesis is with EEG data. We have a lot of, you know, especially particularly relative to the fMRI data, a lot of EEG data on lucid, active lucid dreamers. And with that, we can create a hypothesis band. And then as kind of was done in the University of Arizona and other places, you basically do this process of elimination where you take this hypothesis band, you go through it and determine that optimal band. So those are the two things you need to know to be able to have an advice that efficaciously,
2: consistently, stably induces a brain state of any type. That is absolutely amazing. Evan, what was your reaction when, uh, when he told you about all this the first time? My reaction um, was kind of what Eric alluded to. I asked some questions and I said, is that possible today? Does the hardware exist today to do this? It feels like this is something that would come in 2050. Um, and then Eric kind of walked me through everything he just described, which is to say that the hardware is there. Um, and in many ways, it's the infrastructure has been built And in a parallel to how in crypto, we talk about, you know, the infrastructure stage and the application stage, Um, the infrastructure is here for something like this. It's now time where we're going to see an abundance of applications that are using essentially infrastructure to understand the brain. That was my reaction to, holy crap, is it 2050 or is it 2023? Uh, Makes a lot of sense. So Eric, what was sort of the one or two key unlocks you think that have sort of happened in the last 10 years across research, across uh, the corporate world broadly that you really think make this possible now versus 10 years ago?
1: Sure. The first is on that algorithm creation point, right? In 2018, the cost of compute was still very, very high to train any algorithms. But even more than that, um, there was this kind of really core limiting factor with creating algorithms with neural data. So, you know, neural data has very unique temporal and spatial qualities that weren't very amiable to a lot of the architectures that were being used for training algorithms on language or just, you know, videos. Um, And so um, in the last couple of years, there was the development of something called a neural transformer, where the back half of the architecture is very similar to any transformer architecture. It's really the convolutional part of the the transformer that is uniquely attuned to the spatial and temporal unique factors and qualities of neural data. So both the cost of compute and having that neural transformer uh, unlock the ability to to create these models. And then the, the, the second thing on the hardware is, you know, one of the beautiful things of Meta spending, what is it, like $45 billion and other companies, Microsoft and so on, on just wearables broadly, whether it's AR, VR and so on, and 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 this is, doesn't even touch on the miniaturization and, and cost reduction of things like ultrasound transducers, but you have an enormous, you know, downward pressure and scaling and cost curve pushed with things like batteries, batteries for, you know, that have good battery density or, or uh, vents and fans for heat dissipation, things like this. So, um, I think the kind of AR, VR, and I mean, we've obviously seen just in the last month with the introduction of Apple uh, and the Vision Pro, there's enormous reductions in cost to a lot of the other component parts that you would need for this.
2: That makes a lot of sense. Um, And I I think this narrative of every 10 years, we sort of look around and we realize infrastructure is actually far cheaper than we ever thought it would be. And that sort of just leads us to being able to build unbelievable things and rethink what we're able to build. It's a narrative that just continues to play out over and over again. And I think it's really playing out right now around compute, which was sort of one of the factors you mentioned. All of that makes a lot of sense. So do you want to tell us a little bit about the hardware itself? What is it that you guys have actually built? And sort of what is the business that you were building around this?
1: Sure. So um, right now we're in the process, we have basically all the components and so on. But if you go to the website, you'll see We've developed um, the renders and the design. Let me just quickly talk a little bit about that. Um, very importantly, because we're talking about something that you wear when you're asleep, it has to be comfortable. So we, one thing that we designed was this endoskeleton that we actually used biomimicry to, to kind of design, where you, you, you can see close up you know, pictures of the render where they're kind of these interlinkages that are kind of bio-inspired by like skeletons. Um, which allows for kind of flexing and expansion for kind of all head sizes. If you guys remember, with the Vision Pro Quest uh, Pro, they were like, we looked at a thousand people's heads to determine, you know, these these types of things, getting ahead of things like that. The the interior of it, of course, has to be soft, comfortable. The exterior has to actually be very slick, because first of all, people. I sleep like a mummy, luckily, but like a lot of people move when they sleep, and you don't want them kind of shifting the headset, the headband while they sleep. And additionally, we've also we're also doing a couple of things on the material selection side. To reduce the amount of noise for the EEG that we have, um, to be clear, we have this EEG in there, which is used for two reasons. One is we we have to determine okay, uh, Mahesh is in REM before we actually induce and stabilize the, the lucid dream, and and two is we use it to actually improve our uh, capture data and improve our models over time. Um, so okay, so you, so we're, we're building this prototype, uh, where you know. We're, we're aiming to, to do the showcase of the prototype and the neural architecture uh, and, and so uh, neural transformer architecture and so on. in actually, September. It also contains, I'll just say, some of the other components, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth connectivity. Importantly, we run the models via the app that we have. Um, and the reason for this is very, very important. If you run, the, if you have to run the, the models on your headband, you need a high-performance chip, which is going to increase the cost. If you have a high-performance chip, you need higher battery density. If you have higher battery density, you have like more heat dissipation. So running it on the on on, on the app allows us to reduce the cost of the headset and, and, and limit you know uh, the requirements on battery density and heat dissipation. So that we also have kind of uh, the ultrasound transducers, of course, that are um, actually doing the pulsing of the ultrasound to stabilize the state. O- on the business side of things, right now, we just launched our website today, very uh, very, very good timing here. We have a reservation, the ability to reserve a headset. It's a $100 deposit that is credited towards the device. This not only allows us, of course, to, to kind of have some kind of you know recognized book and booking revenue, which is very unique for a deep stage company at the, at the early stages. But actually the strategy for creating that demand uh, list is you can take that demand list, apply some con- conversion metric, and say to a manufacturer, we have this many people like, that are guaranteed that we need headsets. And so you can create far better manufacturing relationships w- with that. The, I'll, I'll say one final thing which, uh, on this, which is the reason why this is important is, I think Elon you know, is famous for saying, prototyping is easy. Production is hard building into that at the early stages. Like that strategy really helps us with that. And then the final thing I'll say is we have the app. So the app is, you know, you'll have a subscription revenue. So we're talking about a hardware subscription model, similar to like an eight sleep. And, and one of the beautiful things about that is, and, and you see this with hardware, uh, subscription model packages, as you can use your software margins that are obviously higher, um, to ameliorate some of the cost of, of the hardware, but I will say, uh, we will have much better margins on the hardware because we don't need that high-performance CPU or cameras or anything like that that you require and three just like ARVN.
2: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now, in terms of thinking about the headband and the data you're collecting, I think a big part of why this is so interesting is that you're arguing this data could be used for some really, really interesting and new use cases. Could you talk a little bit about sort of what makes the potential lucid dreaming data so valuable? Sure. Um, so, m-
1: Recently, some people might have seen there's, you know, and again, this is the result of this neural transformer architecture now being more widespreadly used. You've seen a proliferation of research in kind of fMRI studies and EEG studies where they're using fMRI data to kind of recreate images that you're seeing. Now, I want to be very clear. I think one of the ethical red lines that I, I feel very firmly on right now um, is that we really don't want to do mind reading. I think like, your conscious experience is the single most intimate thing that you have. That's a Pandora's box that I, I find very concerning. Um, and as Evan said, by the way, at the beginning of the podcast, this technology is inevitable, and so you know that really also really kind of compels me to, to really you know start this company, lead, you know, lead in this area and kind of set these kind of you know p- parameters and think about these things because these are really profound ethical questions. Um, but what we can do is, and I'm launching a piece tomorrow that talks about this. In, in, in consciousness, you know, when you break down the problem of consciousness, there is, as David Chalmers described, an easy problem, which is simply the neural correlates that correspond with consciousness. And then the hard problem, which is the phenomenological experience. You know, why is red, red? Why does something feel like this, that, the other? But what's great about this data is we can do data labeling on a scale that's pretty non-trivial. So how do we do this? When you wake up from your dream, you're going to be asked two questions. One, do you want to upload that data so we can improve our models? And two is you can file a dream report. So let's say Evan says, I dreamt that I was in this, you know, under a waterfall in this beautiful place, so on, so forth. And then let's say we have a 1,000 or, or 10,000 other people who've talked about dreaming about being in a waterfall, we can look at that EEG data and solve that data labeling problem. And with that, you can start to be, you know, begin to build really robust understandings of the phenomenological content of, of experience. And that's really unique. The final thing I'll say, um, less so on the data, but on, on what, what I think you can do with kind of information is, you can start to imagine building kind of a, a, a social feature where people can say, I did this extraordinary thing. You know, everything has a distribution curve, right? Like the top, like there are gonna be like a 10% of people that use this device that are extraordinary at it. Like they're extraordinary at doing novel, unique things. And then they can basically post like a protocol of how they did this. And other users can go and look at it and say, oh, like I actually like can like try this. And like people will gain followings because first of all, what they did is, is repeatable. Um, and so on, I call these people like the prophets, like these are the prophetic class. It's kind of like the analogous class to like influencers. Um, I'll, I'll pause there because I could probably go into a diatribe, but but yeah.
2: No, that makes a lot of sense. And the diatribe is kind of, point of the, part of the point here, so we appreciate and enjoy it. Evan, what, uh, uh, what was your reaction to all of that when he, uh, when he started uh, telling me about some of this stuff? Yeah, I think that's actually a great transition, um, which is people can post and say, okay, what was I able to do while using this device to kind of navigate my my consciousness? Um, to program it in a certain way. Like I, I like to call it programmatic consciousness. Is what we're we're moving towards. It's like you want to feel a certain way. You can program it in a way. You want to be in a certain mind state. You can do that. And so, part of the reason I'm so obsessed with this idea um, is because I've been obsessed with a lot of just like, psychology people over time. Um, so Phil Stutz, for instance, is someone I've followed for a long time. He's the um, he was working with Jonah Hill in the documentary slash movie that Jonah Hill put out. I think it was last year. And he has this thing called tools, which it's actually similar to what Eric's describing here. Um, These tools are, call it 90 seconds, two minute long practices um, that are somatic. They involve moving your body or doing something, or at least like being present and open. Um, But then more so, they're actually navigating the mind above all else. It's saying, close your eyes and imagine something. And there's one which, you know, maybe you talk to yourself and you navigate a stage presence that you wanna have. You're giving a big speech and you wanna get into a state where you're comfortable with that. Maybe you're stressed about something. Maybe you're angry at someone and he uses these quote tools to navigate your consciousness point being is I don't think that needs to just be something you think about in the future. I think it could be technologically assisted in the future. And so a lot of where this goes with all of the hardware is to say, how do you use technology as a tool to navigate different brain states?
1: I couldn't agree more. I mean, one of the things that I think has been holding back the, the mass commercialization of consumer neurotech is that the paradigm that we've been in is really focused around like neural feedback. Where there's companies that have ET headbands, where you can kind of they have content that try to guide you into certain brain states, focus or meditation or bliss. But but the issue there is it still requires work. My joke for this is like you can use uh, the case study of why is Ozempic flying off the shelves and not gym memberships. And this just touches on a really deep seated part of human nature, which is people just want you to give it to them. And I think it's only once we get into the neurostimulation, you know, paradigm of consumer neurotech that we will really see mass adoption. And importantly, to Tevin's point giving people experiences and, and capacities that are novel I mean in the case of a lucid Dream it's this extraordinary novel flexible you know interface but then even other other brain states you know also that I think people will really benefit from
2: if you think about it as well like when it comes to our physical health we use technologies if someone is going for something we don't say oh go to the gym and the gym will fix what happened to your arm we say oh here's a technology a cast that we can put on your arm and let's have that help fix your arm And I think there will be a point in the future where it actually looks absurd when we look to the past and say everything we tried to do to change the states of our brain um, was the equivalent of prescribing a gym membership to the patient. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. I almost think about this in terms of Eastern philosophy kind of coming to the West a little bit, which is there's this focus, I think, in the West on the external and sort of dealing with the material world and navigating within it. Within the East, it's a real focus on the concept of ego and what's inside and internal. And a lot of, I think, of what we're seeing with the focus on the brain, especially today is realizing that a lot of the problems that we have to solve are actually best solved from the inside, uh, which is sort of a pretty interesting way to think about it. Now, I think both of you have put out some really, really interesting ideas on how we can kind of use technology to change the way we, our brain understands the world and therefore even interacts with phenomena around us. There's going to be some people who see this kind of stuff and say, hang on, what the hell is that? You want me to put what on my brain? You want me to put electrical stimuli on my head? What do you have to say to people like that, Eric? What do you have to say to the people that you know might be more hesitant to adopt these kinds of ideas because they are sort of new and out there and you could almost argue even invasive a little bit. Sure.
1: I mean, you know, an honest read of any uh, introduction of any technology is you will have, have that reaction. What, what I will say, you know, importantly, um, first, well, like the concentrated ultrasound, you know, to even use it, there was five or 10 years of primate testing and other things where they had to determine where, where, is the, uh, where does the band actually start to become firm, where like you're not stimulating, you're frying somebody's brain. Right. Um, But we've determined that. There has been uh, ample study on people who've undergone these stimuli, also from other modalities like transcranial electromagnetic stimulation, and there's been no negative side effects as results. I'd also say this is the importance of a non-invasive technology versus an invasive technology. If we look at Neuralink, right, they're starting with quadriplegics, paraplegics, people who are blind, because the, the risk, even with their extraordinary surgical robot, and it is extraordinary, um, you're still rolling a dice because there's a certain type of, of scarring that you can do and so on and so forth. So, but if you're a quadriplegic, like maybe like the risk reward is is it sufficient that you'll roll the device, uh, roll, roll the dice. But to get into a, a mass consumer kind of discretionary recreational category, you have it be non-invasive. Um, I think over time, what you'll kind of see is a few things. Like one, you know, a lot of people like do with a lot of things, right? Like they're not going to be the first, you know, a hundred thousand or a million, uh, but they will be the, the millionth first after like, you know, some time. Um, and, and things kind of get social-proofed that way. I also think, um, and this might seem like a non sequitur, but I think it's important to say, with the launch and takeoff of AI, and whenever the timeline, you know, whatever your timeline is, like AGI, the, the really one of the last refuges of, 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 of humanity will certainly still be consciousness. And I think in reaction, what you will see is people increasingly will, will be yearning to explore their consciousness. And you already see this, by the way, today, with the proliferation of use of psychedelics and, and meditation and so on and so forth. Um, And I think that, you know, the technology that we're talking about is is simply accelerating that trend. And I actually, by the way, think it's really important that we develop uh, in parallel to, you know, developing, you know, quote unquote machine consciousness, that we actually like develop develop technologies that can expand and and, and explore and accelerate
2: uh, human consciousness. Makes a lot of sense. So at the end of the day, they're always early adopters and they're sort of latecomers. And the idea will just be around showing the utility Uh, to that point. You know, at the end of the day, you've got some academic partnerships already set up, right? Some early trials going. Uh, It's pretty impressive what you've been able to sort of put together, even at this point, being so early into this. How do you sort of see the acceleration of go-to-market for something like this? Could you sort of just walk us through how you see this business evolving on like a one-year product timeline, on a five-year timeline, and then at a high level, if this is really successful, what would you have hoped to achieve? Sure. So
1: right now, our focus is on developing the hardware manufacturing capacities, this, that, the other, you know, that core competency that any hardware company would require. With our research partners around the world, basically we are accelerating considerably to, to be able to basically determine what this efficacious band is for the ultrasound, um, as well as, you know, training our models on the fMRI data for, for the triangulation and being able to know where to stimulate that. So again, in the first year, our hope is that we can determine that and then have the final specs for the hardware. How many transducers do you need? That's how many, bat, you know, what is the battery density, so forth, um, and then just continue to optimize and improve the algorithms. Um, and, and then the hope is, again, you have the demand lead list so you can go to manufacturing, you know, in, in a much more swift motion. And then you, you also have that, so you have that initial device consumer base where you, you locked into that. And, and what's great, right? In the same way that Tesla uses its cars to improve its models, we use our advanced to improve our models. And so in the first year or two post-launch, you know, it's probably really going to be about improving our capacities with respect to lucid dreaming and building out a lot of like that social infrastructure. And I think you'll see, as I mentioned, kind of with this like profit class, you know, profit classes on, you'll, you'll see micro economies and economies and, and social organization kind of take place on a larger timescale. The thing that's important to say is this is a general purpose technology. As I said, contrary to Ultronund was first used to stimulate uh, deep meditative states. So we can actually, you know, over time expand horizontally into other, I call it conscious exploration verticals and increase the utility of the device. And we can, by the way, use our customer base to do this. I could say, okay, Evan has his headband, he's using it for lucid dreaming, but he's also maybe an avid uh, meditator. i say, if you upload four data pulls of you meditating, we will waive your subscription for the month of X, you know, and start to use our users and so on to build out these data sets and launch other products, essentially services of, of simulating other brain states. And then, you know, on the 10 year and into the future horizon, what are we really trying to do? We're trying to create a general purpose technology that allows humanity to explore the state's basic consciousness.
2: That's amazing. It's amazing to see how you could turn this innovation over a five to 10 year period almost into a platform uh, to build all sorts of other stuff on. So it sounds like there's sort of two core trends, right? The cost of compute and core infra is going down a lot, and our understanding of the brain is increasing significantly by the day. Uh, I I think there's some really interesting stuff coming for the brain in the next couple of years, and uh, I'm very interested and focused on sort of the evolution of brain-related technology. I know, Evan, you've been doing a lot of investing around the space, or at least very interested in the space. Is there uh, anything within sort of this deep learning brain tech space broadly that you've sort of been thinking through or thinking about recently? Yeah, I've been doing a lot of investing um, personally into the the category, and I'm just super interested to see what comes of it. There are two ideas that I think will manifest over the next, one will manifest, I think, over the next probably three to five years, maybe five to 10, the other, which is probably a bit longer out. Um, But the first idea that's at the intersection of just like consciousness and states and um, technology is this idea of what if I could actually journal into an LLM um, throughout my life? and then I could document what I'm like at different stages of my life. And so, like, in some ways, I could talk to my five-year-old self today if I were doing that when I was five. I could talk to my 10-year-old self, my 20-year-old self. Um, and that turns really cool. It's like returning to a past state. In some ways, it's it's kind of time traveling and meeting yourself at a different period. Um, so every generation, I feel, has something where they, they look to their kids, they look to their grandkids, and they say, wow, I wish I had this, you're so lucky. Um, I feel like for, for our parents, it's, they're like, I wish I had the internet growing up. I could have learned so much. This is one of the things I feel very confident. I'm going to end up looking to my kids and saying, wow, I wish I had the ability to talk to my five-year-old self whenever I wanted. The second, which ties into then a hardware device, though, is taking that a step further. It's to say, like, what if I could actually record how I feel at a different state? Like I record the feeling of the first time I saw snow, or my first love, or my first big business win, um, or a meditative state, or, or really anything. And I can, as I return to talking to my five-year-old self, I could actually program my my brain to feel that sensation again. Um, That also turns super interesting. So those are ideas that I think are going to start to be explored increasingly as we go forward. Um, The last piece I would add, though, and kind of to the platform point of what can happen with Eric and the company is it's reasonable to believe there will be a platform that is kind of like the operating system for exploring the the brain. we have that for health today, like I wear my wear a ring. We have that for the internet. I have a PC that explores everything. Um, we had that for music. It used to be the iPod. Now it's I'm just ing- integrated into my phone. Um, we have that for the physical world, it's cars. And so it, it, it's reasonable that there will be a platform that helps us navigate this world. And, and that is complete white space right now. Yeah, no, Wow, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, at the end of the day, it sounds like we're going to see a lot more change over the the next couple of years than we've seen over the last few. Uh, Guys, with that, I just want to say thank you so much for all the time here. And thanks for a really, really interesting take. I think at the end of the day, as I sort of mentioned, there's a lot more change coming in the next few years and super excited to see smart people like you sort of on the forefront of all of that. Just very quickly before we wrap, Eric, Evan, is there any sort of last words you kind of want to leave listeners with? Anything to keep uh, eyes out for? If you want to quickly pub your socials, that might be helpful. Start with Eric. Sure. The company's Twitter handle is at prophetic AI. I'm just at Eric Wahlberg
1: and you'll see the website launch and you can go take a look and uh, it's propheticai.co and and you can reserve a headset if you're so inclined. The last thing I would like to leave people with is the North Star of this company, like OpenAI has a North Star of their goal is to build AGI. Like that's, you know, there's a lot of steps along the way. Our North Star is to solve consciousness. And the reason why I feel confident, and again, I am going to post a piece that talks about this tomorrow is that there's a fame, my favorite quote, maybe ever, but certainly from like kind of the industrial revolution, really the second industrial revolution, was that the, the invention, um, the laws of thermodynamics owed more to the invention of the steam engine than the reverse. That is to say, it is by engineering things that we can really understand very fundamental things about this. And what we're building is a steam engine for consciousness. And it follows that with that, we will have a much better chance than just doing the theory of mind pontification, which we've been doing really for the last couple of millennia, to really actually solve one of the greatest metaphysical questions uh, ever, which is what is consciousness? Um, and that's our aim.
2: Beautifully said. What I would add to that is I grew up um, obsessed with the idea of consciousness. You pointed to Eastern spirituality, for instance, I, I read the Gita in high school um, through a random rabbit hole I went down, for instance. And what I'm most excited by now is, is just that these ideas are finally being equipped with technology and scientific study. They're ideas that were super abstract and have been written about and thought about throughout history. I think we're, we're at the start of this age where science is merging with these fields, and that's super exciting. Where can we find you on socials? My Twitter is at Evan B. Evan B. Fish. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. Well, this has been an awesome episode. Really appreciate all of your time and uh, looking forward to sort of seeing this blossom over the next couple of years.